This episode of Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show is sponsored by Holman Cadillac in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Get 0% financing on all new Cadillac ATS, ATS Coupe, CTS, SRX, XTS, and Escalade models through September 31st. Cadillac is a luxury car, and Holman Cadillac in Mount Laurel, New Jersey is a luxury car experience. Call 866-865-6973 or go to holmancadillac.com. Now, here's the show. I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Hello, I am David Murphy, your host for another edition of Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. We have a ton to get to. So let's run down the show real quick. I am going to be headed in just a few minutes up to Boston, uh, not physically, but via telephone, to check in with my partner in crime and co-host, Mike Sielski of the Philadelphia Inquirer. He is up in Amherst awaiting the start of the Sixers preseason. We are recording this on Tuesday prior to the Sixers preseason opener against the Celtics, but we're going to have a lot of Sixers talk on today's podcast, a lot of Phillies talk on today's podcast, and of course the Eagles. In addition to Mike, we will be checking in with Bob Cooney, Philadelphia Daily News 76ers beat writer, and he's going to give us a ton of insight on not just Ben Simmons and his foot, but Joel Embiid and, and what kind of minutes we can expect out of him this preseason and, and as well as the regular season. And Dario Saric, where does the Croatian fit into things? And where does his role look to evolve now that Ben Simmons will not be competing with him for playing time and we will finally then sit down for a nice long half hour conversation with Matt Breen and Matt Gelb our Inquire Sixers excuse me Inquire Phillies beat writers and we will ask them to roll up the sleeves of their surgical gowns and scrub in and dissect the innards of this recently completed Philly season with an eye towards 2017 and beyond we will look at the free agent market we will look at the trade market we will run down some guys on the current roster that will uh, potentially be on the move, or if not on the move, then at least on the trading block. We will look at some surprises, some disappointments, some injury questions. We'll have it all. But first, I don't know if Mike Sielski is looking forward to this next week as much as I am, but I hope he is because it's a very, very, very important week in both of our lives. Would you agree, Mike? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, the Eagles and the Sixers, you know, more so than even my wife, children, you know, anything really dominate my my existence. Um, you know, they're, they're the center of my universe. I, I know that's, that's that way for you, too. Don't you know what this next week is? It is, I don't know, Eagles-Lions week? What am I missing? It's our anniversary, Mike. One oh, year. One year. year. Anniversary of this podcast? The year was 2015, the month was October, and three men settled into an office at 801 Market Street with three microphones and a dream. Yeah, you know, it's just become so much a part of my life, in addition to the Eagles and the Sixers and my wife and children, that I just, I kind of just took it for granted that it was always there. Uh, there's some diseases you could say the same thing about. <laughs> and some fungi. Very true. How true. So we're, uh, you know, I think it's been a successful year for us. We, we've only lost uh, an office, uh, two producers, uh, our dignity. Those, hey, sometimes you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. 
um, and sacrifices have had to be made. It's funny that when they finally released the uh, Trivial Pursuit, uh, not another Philly Sports Talk Show edition, uh, probably the, the most unanswerable question will be, who was that third man in the office that first podcast? Oh, yeah. that's And, and people will not believe it when we give the answer because they'll think we made his name up. I know. I know. Uh, it's his, his name is John Smith, John V. Smith, as yeah, a matter of fact. Um, he actually is the reason you see such stupendous artwork on iTunes when you click on Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. Uh, graphic designer over at the Inquirer, his schedule just didn't jibe with ours. Uh, and so he moved on. I, at least I tell myself it was because of his schedule. It was probably because he could not envision himself spending another hour locked in a closet with you and I. Oh no, no! I, I mean, look, we drove Tannenwall crazy too, and well, you know, that, that we exacerbated like, we exacerbated his craziness. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, we we finished the drive. We did. <laughs> it was like an Uber. We Uber pulled him to uh, craziness. We did. Anyway, we've got a very, 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 very packed show. So you will only be joining us for a ten to fifteen minute cameo, just a taste, just enough to give give people their sealski. Wet the whistle there. Yeah, um, you are currently. It is Tuesday, October. Fourth, you're currently up in Amherst. I am. I'm at the beautiful uh, Amherst Courtyard, uh, about a mile and a half from the Mullen Center, where I've just returned from uh, Sixers morning shoot around in anticipation of the big debut of Joel Embiid and Dario Saric tonight a- against the Celtics. Absolutely, and and later in the podcast, you will hear myself and Sam Danellen, Daily News columnist, sit down with Daily News Sixers writer Bob Cooney. Uh, Cooney was great as always. He's a great talker, uh, great shooter too. Uh, nice yes, little two, nice little yes, two guard from uh, Camden Catholic, I believe. You got to get a hand in his face. You absolutely do have to get a hand in his face, just like Mike Sealski, because uh, he brings the hottest takes. I do. They can take our producers, they can take our mics, but they can never take our takes. That's right. Mike, I spent last night watching a young quarterback named Samuel Bradford lead the Minnesota Vikings to a four zero record. Did you watch Mr. Bradford do the same thing? And what was your reaction? I did not. I was driving up to Amherst uh, with fellow Sixers writer from the Inquirer, Todd. I think it was streaming online. You could have watched on your phone. Uh, Tom Tom Moore, uh, who was also in the in the Rav Four with us, uh, was following the game online. Were there two Were there two ten year old soccer players in your in your Rav Four with you guys? Not. Uh, although Keith and Tom often act like ten-year-old soccer players, um, that is the ultimate we soccer the mom vehicle. Um, yeah, we were following the game online, and I went back and watched some of it. Actually, this morning I got up early enough to do that. Uh, so, yeah, not surprised. I am. I am not surprised by this, and uh, I'm sure you've seen um, some going back and forth about this on Twitter this morning, because a lot of people who have uh, had previously said that Sam Bradford was no good um, are eating a bit of crow now because the Vikings are 3-0 and in the games he's played and his numbers I think you tweeted this um, on Tuesday morning, his numbers surpass even Sam, uh, even the great Carson Wentz um, so Sam Bradford is actually a better Carson Wentz than Carson Wentz uh, one could argue through the first four games of the season one could, um, one could argue it I, I don't know that you will find a very receptive audience here in Philadelphia I get the uh, sense no. I get the sense that the city of brotherly love is perfectly happy with their Carson Wentz um, oh yeah yeah and I'm, I mean my, my tongue's in my cheek here I know I say that but um, although you do have to you do have a uh, penchant for not putting it firmly enough in your cheek at least uh, at least 
not firmly enough to register with your Twitter audience. That's true. That's true. I, I, I need to be overt when I say completely ridiculous things that I'm saying completely ridiculous things. I get that. Um, but, but yeah, it's interesting. And it's not so I don't think that. And again, we're talking about a four game sample size, but we're also talking about an argument that was unscientific to begin with. So I don't necessarily feel bad throwing it back in, in people's face. And it's not that Sam Bradford wasn't good, although that certainly was was, you know, another argument that they had. It was that he was not a, quote, hashtag winner. And this was always the argument that just drove me absolutely bananas uh, when people, because, hey, you can't argue against it. I mean, yeah, you're right. The guy, you know, he hasn't won football games, you know. But then to, you know, use that as evidence that he is, you know, by nature not a quote-unquote winner, it just always seems silly to me because, again, you know, it just whatever mark sanchez was a winner in new york and he's, he wasn't a winner after new york you know like right it, it, right yeah and it i talked to uh i did a column for the weekend uh where i talked to dick Vermeil. i read it this and and he made that very point he he cited brad in fact he he wanted to drive home this point so strongly that we actually finished the interview and he called me back three minutes later hmm. to, to kind of reiterate this point which was how much environment and surroundings and coaching uh, and can improve or assist a quarterback. And his his argument, he brought up Bradford specifically. He said Sam Bradford's going to going to play great. You could win a Super Bowl with Sam Bradford, right? Uh, because Vermeil had intimate knowledge of you know the conditions under which Bradford was playing while he was a member of the Rams uh, for those first five years of his career. And as Vermeil will tell you, they were not good. And that's that's kind of the thing that's always puzzled me about the debate. The the not so take Wentz out of it, just the, the Bradford debate itself as to how good is he actually, uh, which is that there's an inherent contradiction in a way at the core of it, which was if you acknowledge, you know, on the one hand you can say, well, he was in a bad situation in St. Louis because he had lousy coaching and lousy offensive lines and lousy skill position players and a host of offensive coordinators and Jeff Fisher and all that kind of stuff. But then you come back and say, but he's no good. Well, it's possible that if you acknowledge that the conditions around him weren't good, then you have to acknowledge it's possible he's a good player who is in such bad surroundings that he would never, he would, his full abilities would not flourish. Um, and if you want to argue that he was really bad, then you have to argue that another quarterback in that situation in St. Louis would have won games or produced better numbers. And I don't know that you could argue either one. So I think we're seeing the guy that he, in a way, kind of always might have been. Um, now that he's with a decent team, with a decent defense, and, and some weapons around him. Yeah, like it's it, it's interesting because Sam Bradford has kind of sparked a uh, you know personal personal a uh, little bit of personal development for myself in terms of my worldview on quarterbacks. Uh, you know, I I've really changed a lot over the last year because I used to be one of these guys who said, you know, you either have there's only two types of quarterbacks: ones that can win you Super Bowl, and ones that can't. You know, and mm-hmm. You know, they have to pass the eye test and all this stuff. And, there, you know, there's still a lot of truth in that, you know. But mm-hmm. what I underestimated was the, the how much situation, coaching, and, you know, all that other ancillary stuff, talent, general manager, organization, can make a, uh, you know, decent quarterback look awful or, you know, an okay quarterback look pretty good. And I think, right. like, the guy, you know, the guy who, again – I always come back to with Bradford is Alex Smith 
And I think I personally think that Sam Bradford is a better quarterback. I would rather have Sam Bra- if you could guarantee me he's stay healthy. I would rather have Sam Bradford on my team than Alex Smith. I just think he's a better. Uh, I think he sees the field better. He's tall. He he makes better throws. I think he's got better accuracy. Yada yada yada. But anyway, Alex Smith. Uh, if you look at his career trajectory, and this is the one word of warning for people who, uh, you know, who have written Jared Goff off. I mean, certainly it's not a great thing that that he hasn't even been on the field yet for the Rams. But, you know, Alex Smith it reminds me a lot. Jared Goff reminds me a lot of how Alex Smith started his career. Uh, yeah. You know, he only played in nine games, uh, you know, his first year. There was a lot of the similar talk, um, like he's just not getting it, yada, yada, yada. And he was really awful for his first, um, you know, let's say. I mean, he was awful for his first three years uh, to the tune of 54.4 completion percentage, uh, 31 interceptions against 19 touchdowns, uh, four, you know, 5.8 yards per attempt, a 63.5 rating. Um, and he wasn't much better his next two years. Really, it was not until his sixth year, coincidentally, when Jim Harbaugh took over, exactly. that Alex Smith became a competent quarterback. And we all forget now that Alex Smith was considered a bust for the first five years of his career. And I'm linking this to Carson Wentz and Sam Bradford because Troy Aikman said something um, kind of interesting during the 4 o'clock game on Sunday I forget which one it was. It might, I think it might have been Dallas, uh, Dallas, San Francisco. I'm not sure if that was the national it game. Was, yeah. But, uh, you, you know, either Troy, Troy Aikman or Joe Buck pointed out that all of these quarterbacks, these young quarterbacks, these first-year starters who have had, you know, such success are all coached by former NFL quarterbacks. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Gary Kubiak up in Denver for Trevor Simeon, Jason Garrett down in Dallas for Dak Prescott, and now Carson Wentz uh, and Doug Peterson. And, and the more I thought about it, the more sense it made, that makes to me. Because you know, when you're a quarterback, it's, it's all about – if you have a guy who can tell you exactly what you're looking at when you're at the line of scrimmage, and, and if, you, if that guy can prepare you well enough, then you don't have to do any of that work necessarily yourself. Like you, if he tells you when, when the safety – when the Steelers are in this, give you this look and the, and the – you know, look at the safety and if he moves here, this is what the coverage is and this is the guy that will be, be open on this play, that makes things a heck of a lot easier. And I think that might be part of why every throw we see Carson Wentz makes, it seems like it's the perfect call for that coverage. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely I do. And I think there's a lot of truth in, in that. And Vermeil echoed that to me uh, in our interview last week. You know, he mentioned Doug Peterson, Frank Reich, and John Filippo, kind of the, the Politburo there that the Eagles have, um, you know, in which Wentz is working and learning and, and figuring things out. That You know, that's a lot better situation uh, than the one Goff has right now with the Rams. Um, and, and that doesn't mean, as you said, it doesn't mean Goff is necessarily going to be a terrible quarterback, but it does mean that his transition from Cal to the NFL is going to be is likely to be slower than Wentz's from North Dakota State to uh, the NFL um, because he's you know Wentz basically has a softer landing you know they're both falling from however high they're falling from and Wentz has got three guys there who know how to kind of catch him and make the tra- make the make the move easier for him whereas you know Goff's got Jeff Fisher who doesn't develop quarterbacks and never really has and in some ways is one in spite of them. So uh, when he's won, that is. That's not, it's not yeah. to take anything away from Carson once. He's clearly played no, no, very well, not. you know, has, yeah. has a tons yeah. of tools. And, it, and, and, it, and we're leaving out all kinds of 
other factors such as you know the, the rise of spread offenses in college mm. football and how that affects a quarterback's transition. You know, Goff played in one of those, Wentz did not. You know, that sort of thing. So, well, and the other thing I'm in, the other thing I'm interested in seeing is how do teams adapt to what Doug Peterson does? Uh, you know, they didn't have tendencies on him when when he came in, and you know he wouldn't be the first first year head coach to get off to a hot start. I mean, we saw the the league adapt to Chip Kelly. You know, we saw the league adapt to the Atlanta Falcons last year after they started 5-0 and under Dan Quinn. I, I'm interested. I think the Eagles, Peterson, and Wentz have surpassed anybody's wildest expectations already through week, uh, you know, four of the NFL season. But I'm interested to see what happens when they start to figure out what Peterson does to counteract this look, um, you know, where Wentz tends to throw against this look. That's where Chip Kelly struggled when people started to understand what he was doing and then countered it um, to take that stuff away. He couldn't. He he struggled to you know hit back. Right, right. And yeah, I'm and, curious and, to see and, what what how long that takes to happen for Peterson and and how how that changes things. Yeah, and it's it's also curious because the Eagles' defense has been so good, and that was one thing that that Kelly in his system over time did not have, which was. Um, not only, you know, the, the Eagles might, with the way their defense is playing, they might be able to get through a game with a win in a game in which, you know, Wentz and Peterson aren't playing as well as they did against the Steelers or the Browns. And so um, you win a game 13-6 to six because your defense carries you for a week while the rookie, you know, has a rough go of it or the opponent knows what plays Peterson is calling because they're starting to pick up on his tendencies. And that's a factor, too. I mean, you know, when – by the time that the league had figured out Kelly, you saw the Eagles getting absolutely destroyed, not just because they were getting on and off the field. You know, their offense was getting on and off the field so fast, the defense was tired, but their defense just wasn't as good as the one we're seeing now. I think that's fairly clear, even given the sample size. What are you looking for out of the Sixers preseason, uh, since you're up uh, there? That none of them have to be carried off the court <laughs> on a stretcher, I think. Uh, that's primary. I mean, <laughs> let's face it. You know, it's, it, here's one thing that, that I'm looking for. Obviously, I want to see Embiid. Everybody wants to see Embiid. I want to see Sarich, um, that, you know, how does this game translate uh, from international play to the NBA? Uh, I want to see how long it takes Sarich to, or excuse me, uh, Embiid to kick the rust off. Uh, but I also want to see development from the guys who have been here. You know, I want to see, you know, they're holding Okafor off. Uh, not playing him Tuesday night. They may or may not play him Thursday. Uh, he said at the shoot-around on Tuesday morning here that he could play against the Celtics in this preseason opener if, if absolutely necessary, but they're going to hold him out anyway. Um, you know, they have another lottery pick on this roster that nobody really talks about him for good reason, and that's Nick Stauskas. And an interesting thing that Brett Brown said at the shoot-around was that because Simmons is now hurt, one of the ways they're going to try to mitigate that loss in kind of a look-and-see kind of thing is um, to let Stauskas play some point guard um, and put him in pick-and-roll situations, which is part of the reason he became a lottery pick coming out of Michigan is that uh, he didn't really play point, but John Beeline put him in a lot of pick-and-rolls with big men, and that was able to, that allowed him to get to the basket or shoot a pull-up and uh, that sort of thing. So, you know, it doesn't sound like much, and it may be just delaying, like, you know, maybe the career dissipation light for Nick Stauskas doesn't blink quite as quickly <laughs> if he's able to figure this out. But uh, it's at least something to look at and to, to see, because there is th that, that's the factor, too, that we've, 
I don't know that enough people are, have been talking about, which is there are still some young guys on this roster who have been on the team before this season that the Sixers need to have developed. Um, they need to make improvements if this thing is going to work. So, and Stauskas and Okafor are at the top of that list. So what is your, uh, what is your sense about Lions-Eagles coming up? I think the Eagles will win fairly easily. The Lions looked I mean, awful last week. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this earlier today that, uh, you know, you hear this, the discussion all the time from former players about, oh, you never want to have the bye week when you're not, you know, when you're playing so well because it gets you out of sync and all this stuff. And I kept thinking, well, it occurred to me, like, well, wait a minute. Like, Carson Wentz played one preseason game and missed the next month and stepped into the next one as if he'd been playing – you know, week after week after week, year after year after year. So maybe the uh, the time off won't have as big an impact uh, on the Eagles as one might have thought. And if that's the case, they're better than the Lions. Um, you know, and that's a pretty demoralizing loss that the you know the Lions are coming off of to the Bears on Sunday. So I would be surprised if uh, if the Eagles didn't win on Sunday. How do you feel? I'm interested. I feel that Detroit is not nearly the team that destroyed the Eagles last year on Thanksgiving. I'm also interested because, you know, the Eagles have tons of motivation, you know, if you believe in that kind of stuff in their favor, not just, you know, with that embarrassment last year on Thanksgiving, which was pretty much the, the beginning of the end of the Chip Kelly era, but also Jim, you know, Jim Schwartz is heading back to Detroit. That's right. That's and right. I don't know that he went there with Buffalo, but I, that's gotta be, you know, Jim, Jim Schwartz is a fiery guy and that's gotta be that, that if he's telling you that he doesn't have any extra oomph this week, he's definitely lying to you. Yeah, and and he strikes, so far anyway, he strikes me as the kind of coach who would be able to translate that uh, and use that to get his players motivated too. Um, right. They seem to like playing for him, and he seems to be able to, you know, it just seems like the dynamic is there that, like, if the Eagles were to play well, let's say they win 23-3, that every guy on the defense you would talk to in that locker room after the game would say, this was for Coach, this was for Jim, yeah. blah, blah, blah. You know, we wanted to play well for him. We knew he was coming back here, yada, yada, yada. And the Jim, the, the, the Jim Bob Cooter show did not look to be operating on all cylinders last week against the Bears. They passed for just 197 yards against that That's secondary. Crazy. Ran for That's six, crazy. Yeah, ran for 66, turned the ball over two times. And uh, gave up 400 yards of total offense to uh, the great Brian Hoyer. So you know, that's one of Sealski's rules in life, Murph. Number one, never trust a man with a mustache. Number two, never trust a man with three names: Jim Bob Cooter, Billy Ray Cyrus. You know, did Billy Ray Cyrus do something to you? Just bad music. Yeah, inflicted that the achy breaky heart on us now for 20 years. Yeah, but I mean, you're also a guy who loves 80s music. There's a lot of great 80s music. You know, and, and Achy Breaky Heart came out in the 90s, and is, it is not good 90s music. It's I used to go, terrible. I, I remember one of my memories of, of childhood is roller skating at Big Wheel Roller Rink to Achy Breaky Heart. They had, a, they had a big poster of Billy Ray Cyrus with his shirt unbuttoned and his, uh, you know, chest hair flowing. Now, see, that there's, there's the difference in generations right there, because I can remember roller skating in, in fifth and sixth grade to uh, Crazy for You by Madonna. So there's a little bit before your time. There you go. Well, on that note, let's. Uh, I heard the beat writers. You, you will hear in our segment. You won't hear, but it, unless you listen to the podcast on the way back, uh, apparently the, the Sixers beats are having a pizza party right now. Um, so Bob, oh, could... I was part of that pizza party. Oh, really? I and got the pizza. Wow. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. this is... me, me, Keith, Tom, and, and Cooney. Uh, 
noshed on pizza in the lobby of the um, the courtyard here. So this is going to be like Inception because we just had a little five-minute interlude with Bob Cooney about the pizza that he was going to eat because <laughs> uh, the Sixers beat writers were having a pizza party. Now, here we are earlier in the podcast, uh, you having already eaten mind. that pizza. You are I mean, it's just, yeah. Anyway, but does the die stop spinning? What happens? <laughs> or the top? Was it a top in Inception? I, 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 was it a dreidel? It may have been dreidel. It might have been. All right. Anyway. Um, thanks, Mike. We'll, uh, we'll, talk, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, Murph. Later. This won't take too long, I promise. A reminder that not another Philly sports talk show is sponsored by Holman Cadillac in Mount Laurel. Stop in and drive the all-new full-size CT6 luxury sedan and the all-new XT5 crossover now at Holman Cadillac in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Call 866-865-6973 or go to holmancadillac.com to arrange your personal test drive today. And here he is, Bob Cooney, Philadelphia Daily News 76ers writer Bobby, you are up in Cambridge, Amherst, Amherst, Dedham, Amherst. Yeah, they're playing at the University of Massachusetts. So Bob's up there. It's Tuesday. We're recording this on Tuesday. The Sixers will be playing tonight. Jaleel Okafor not expected to play. Ben Simmons obviously not expected to play. Uh, But Bobby, what is the? uh, We'll get to Simmons in a minute. But what is the preseason hold for Joel Embiid? Because I think he's probably the most interesting guy now that Simmons is out yeah the focus definitely shifts to him no question about it so for the first game for the first preseason games brett, brett brown uh said that he's just going to play him 12 minutes four minute clumps three four minute clumps probably all in the first half uh wants to watch him get up and down the floor um and i don't say that casually like they they really watch if you don't make it up and down the floor on a full sprint like two times in a row they deem you too tired to play and, and they'll take you out and and uh they're looking for Joel Embiid in that four-minute clump to make sure each and every time he gets up down the floor uh, in a full sprint. They're looking more from him defensively because that comes first. When you've been, when you've been out of the game for, for two and a half years like he's been, um, you expect the offensive game not to be as sharp and, and for him to you know, be a little bit rusty. But defensively is where Brett Brown wants him to shine, and, and that's what Joel Embiid wants to do. I mean, he makes no bones about it that he's a defensive player, and he doesn't want the other team scoring on layups or scoring on dunks. So, uh That'll be the key thing for people to watch. Watch his defensive ability. Watch how far along he is there. It's going to take a little while for his offensive game to come around. So when they're watching him running up and down the court, are they looking more at his basketball playing shape or are they looking at his foot? I think it's both. Uh, but, I, you know, I asked Brett Brown that the other day, and I asked Joel that also. Like, you know that mental block they've, that, that athletes get, whether it's a knee, an ankle, whatever it may be. When they get back on the floor, it takes a while to mentally get over the thought that it might happen again. And uh, I think it took Brett Brown a little bit of time, and I, and I think it took Joel Embiid a little bit of time. But right now I think they're both in a good place that they feel confident in the foot, and they've passed that mental block. So now it's, it's the physical uh, stuff. It's, it's the basketball skills. It's the footwork. It's being in position. It's anticipation. You know, those are things that, that only really come back when you're playing the game at full speed, which he hasn't done in the NBA ever and he hasn't done, uh, you know, on a court really all that much at all for two and a half years. So um, that's what you have to keep an eye on. He's got to get his basketball timing back as much as anything. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because that was a big storyline with Sam Bradford last year, and I think you saw it. I don't know how much of the Eagles you watched um, throughout the season. Every single game, Dave. You you were in your uh, Seth Joyner 59 jersey? No, I don't do jerseys, but I was around several people who do do jerseys. Nice, nice. You're born born and bred, right? (laughs) 
Yeah, born and bred. So you're a big Eagles fan growing up? I was, absolutely. And I told this story before real quick. I was about six, 17 years old. I had all the guys that I played high school ball with over watching the Eagles game or watching an Eagles-Cowboys game. And I really think this is what led me into my profession was I'm watching it, and these guys are living and dying with every play. And it was going to ruin their lives that the Eagles lost that game. And I sat back and I looked at them and I said, what difference does it make? I have to go to practice tomorrow anyway, and the coach is going to run our balls off anyway. So what difference does it make whether the Eagles win or not? My life really doesn't change. And from that point on, real, honest to God, I watch game for the entertainment value of it, not so much the rooting interest of, of how one team does over another. Yeah, it's, it's funny how much, how much people cannot understand that when, when they ask us, uh, you know, who we root for. I, I guess I'll speak for myself. I mean, people just don't understand when, when they ask me who my favorite team is when I tell them that I don't have one, you know? Right. Yeah, they don't understand that you're desensitized when you're doing a job. Like, you, may, you might make relationships and you might hope that someone does well as a professional or something like that, but that's not our job. Our job is to tell the fans what's going on with the team, the insides, the outsides of the team, good news, bad news, what they want to hear, what they don't want to hear. And it is funny, with social media, Dave, as you very well know, you'll put something out there that fans don't agree with, and now all of a sudden we're asses or we hate the team or all we're looking for is negative. We're just reporting the truth. You know, we can report positives and nobody will say anything about that. But when the negatives happen, that's our job to tell the people what's going on. And, and, and we do it without – we do it unconditionally. We do it without, without you know, hope. We, we can't be fans. And if we were, then they wouldn't find out half the information that, that we give them. Yeah, I think if, if you were to list things that sports writers root for, number one is a quick game. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but like me, I, like you said, I, I root for – first of all, I root for myself to be right. So if I've said something – uh, I root. Sure. I root for that to back. That, I root for it to back it up, um, you know. And then I root for guys that I like personally. Uh, you know, good stories. Obviously, I I root for. I mean, there's nothing better than uh, that. 2008 World Series was was still the most fun I ever had doing this job because it was just a great story and everybody was hanging on every word of it. Um, sure. So yeah, like and I'd makes, love to it see. Makes our lives so much easier, and and it makes fans want to read us, and that's what we're here for. And you know, it's. Um, I, it, it, it's the most frustrating part of the job when, when, especially this day in social media, when fans don't completely understand where we're coming from. But at the same time, I would there, there are many times when I find myself wishing that I could be a fan and just go to a game and drink beer and act irrationally and, you know, kind of live and die because it's, it really is a, a season-long entertainment, you know? If, if you took away going to a game, I would agree that you've probably <laughs> done that a lot of times. I drank beer and acted irrationally. So yeah, that's stay away point. from the games, and, and then you get you know, most of your wish. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Embiid, are we, where are we at right now? Because I'm looking I, – I have always looked at it as he's a bonus. I expect him to get re-hurt. I expect him not to have a long career. Are we past the point where that should be the assumption? I mean, is he, is he out of the woods are we expecting him – is it just a matter of how good he's going to be now and how, how much he can play each night? Or, you know, is, is Brett Brown still gritting his teeth every time Joel Embiid lands awkwardly on that foot? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's to the point of, of, like, scared, you know, like you're scared to see him out there or they're scared to see him out there. And I don't know if it's to the point where you can just breathe easy and say, okay, it's over with, move on. I don't think it's ever over with. Um, especially that type of injury that, that so many other players have had and it has proved to be reoccurring. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I, I really do view this, and part of this goes into the Ben Simmons injury. 
I view I, I just view each injury as its own entity, and 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 to compare is understandable. And and uh, but but at some point, it just has to be its own injury, and and it has to heal its own way. And maybe after should he need surgery, which seems most likely, maybe after he gets that screw put in and it's removed, and they look at it and they say, wow, this kid is a really good healer, and he plays, and, and they say there's no pain or swelling or any of those things, you know, maybe that happens. Maybe, maybe, maybe that happens with him. Maybe Joel Embiid never, ever gets hurt again, and, and maybe this was a blip on the screen and, and it never comes back to get him. So, you know, if it does happen, I, it, it's bad and it's a shame and, and it throws your organization backwards tenfold but you you I, I don't think and i'm not saying i'm right but i don't think you can uh, approach every game every practice whether you're a coach a player an organization with that thought in your mind oh my god he can't get hurt again or he can't do this because he might get hurt he's here to play basketball he's got to do that now yeah you wrote something in that vein in the daily news today it's tuesday october 3rd or 4th 4th i think it is 4th yes uh i don't know my days no. It's life is just the one big 365 day blur to it's me. Part of being a beat writer, Dave, you never know what day it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, you guys, you guys. Uh, I mean, baseball. I wouldn't even know what. Literally, there were times when I did not know what city I was landing in. Oh, I, I tell people this story all the time. I'll wake up in a hotel room, and it'll take me a while after I'm wake to even remember yep. where I am. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's just it's it's one big blur. I but finally got over the habit of, of forgetting which rental car I was driving. Um, yeah, that's bad. Yeah, that that plagued me for uh, for my first half a year on a beat. Uh, yeah, but, but ben, with keyless entry now makes it a lot easier. So here's here's my thing with Ben Simmons, and this is this is what. I don't understand because I know the word Jones fracture. First of all, have the Sixers confirmed what kind of fracture? No. Okay. They haven't come out yet. Yeah. And, and, but with Colangelo coming out on Sunday saying, saying he most likely needs surgery, of the three different types of fractures to that bone, that would be the only one that would require surgery is what doctors have told me. Okay. So here's the confusing thing for me about it because other guys who have had whatever quote, I mean, there's, there was this big Twitter uproar over whether it was a Jones fracture or not. But – a lot of the guys like Durant, for example, I don't know that that was an acute injury. Like, I don't know that he, you know, sprained, did what, what Simmons did and rolled his ankle uh, right. and ended up fracturing the bone. It was more like a, like a, a chronic thing from repeated stress. Um, is there a difference or is a Jones fracture a Jones fracture? Is there a difference between like if you like, like, for example, he, you know, when I was a uh, like, like Embiid, was there anything that Embiid did? to acutely fracture that ankle or was it more like a repeated stress thing like the Durant, like take Durant right. like yeah. I think Durant was more like he just felt something funny in his foot and you know they went and checked it out and he had a Jones fracture whereas Simmons at first we thought it was a sprained ankle and it was like blunt trauma that caused the fractures is there a difference right. yeah it, there is and that that's a great great question and, and and one that a doctor explained to me on Saturday well yeah there is both types can happen it can be repetitive stress that causes it there can be uh, an acute happening that, that makes it uh, uh, come to fruition. So I think with Embiid, if I'm not mistaken, he was doing his last workout right before the NBA draft. I think they noticed it more than it was acute injury. I right. think it was, it, was, it was picked up. Yeah, Simmons, it was, it was an actual happening that caused it. You, you can get fractures, as, as you very well know, but if people out there don't, you can get fractures in your feet like – it can expand just through the wear and tear, jumping and running and all that stuff, and it can get worse and worse and turn into uh, a different type of fracture, uh, a stress fracture or a Jones fracture. 
Um, so, yeah, it can happen both ways, and I think it did happen two different ways with these guys, even though they're two different injuries. They could – I think it did happen uh, two different ways with these guys. Which is why, for me, I don't, I don't necessarily – think that there's and again it's like you said everyone heals differently every injury is differently and you know there's a reason why even guys who are looking at the MRIs will go to a different doctor to get their opinion a second opinion on the MRI so we you know we're in absolutely no position to really offer any sort of prognosis but it would seem to me like Embiid's injury was so concerning at the time of the draft because a it was coupled with the back b he was a big man and c it seemed like kind of one of those chronic wear and tear injuries rather than again you break a bone and the bone heals it, right am i right in thinking that Simmons there's there's less of a long-term concern for Simmons because this this you know kind of was an acute thing and and you know what happened i mean we've all sprained ankles i broke my the fifth metatarsal on my foot my junior year of high school um, you know, and I haven't had any more problems. Obviously, I'm not an a- elite athlete, but you're uh, up there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Are there different prognoses for the two types? Like, are we? What is the yeah. long-term concern here with with Ben Simmons? And I should say, funny. Sam Donnellan yeah. has joined us now, uh, yeah, so and I know you're a big Sam Donnellan fan, Bobby. I'm a big Bob Cooney fan too. Oh, are you kidding me? There's no bigger. That's why I jogged <laughs> back to my hotel so that when I age, I want to be like <laughs> Sam Donnellan in the aging process. But at the same time, I'm jogging to try to keep up with David Murphy's of the world. So. You know, it's, it's that fine line that right. I tow right there. But yeah, as as far as as far as uh, the the prognosis moving forward with him, uh, I, I've had doctors say it very well could be you get the screw put in, you get it taken out, you rehab it, and he's good to go. Others have said, yeah, there there is that scary part with that with that Jones fracture. There is a likelihood that it comes back again and and you're talking about somebody you know that's that big and i'm not referring to all the weight that he just put on no matter what this guy's 6'10 240 pounds you know and i went back you know he said it i forget where we were but simmons said he was 217 and now he's up to 245 250 i went back and looked at his lsu at at the rosters and and the right there's no way then he was listed as like two between 230 and 240 I do not think it is physically possible to put on 30 pounds of muscle in six months. I think he put on muscle. I think he reshaped his body. Right. Uh, you know, as you know, you can do. He may, he may have put on some weight, but he reshaped his body. But everything that I look back, including their roster from his freshman year, the LSU official roster, they had him listed at 240. Mm-hmm. So I don't think all this weight gain's been put on. But uh, anyway, you're talking about a 6'10 guy, 250 pounds. You're also talking about you're also talking about a 19 year old. I don't know if if you've heard if if the word growth plate has been uttered to you by these doctors. But I had a daughter who had a I guess what I remember was a Jones fracture and stepping into a you know jogging to a meeting on on a soccer field, just stepping into like a rut. Um, and the big concern in casting her that I heard over and over again was growth plate because she was 17 at the time he's 19 but those big bodies i don't presume uh, are done growing at least until you know early 20s if not mid 20s so i wonder did did that word get uttered and does that factor into it in terms of of the fear of recurring the injury yeah i have i have kids that have had injuries and growth plate is the first thing that that always comes up and all but no uh, Sam, I, I, in in the three or four doctors that I talked to, never once did a growth plate come up. So I'm not, I, I, you know, I don't know how that comes into play, mm-hmm. where the fifth mar- metatarsal is and all that. I, I don't know. There might be an assumption that this kid's been 6'10 since he was a senior in high school yeah. and two years ago. And so maybe the growth done. is done. Yep. You know, um, so I, that has not been brought up, just to answer your mm-hmm. question. But even when they're done growing height-wise, I mean, there's a there's a bone density 
issue that sure yeah so that's what it's really interesting to me because we th we see these guys they look <laughs> all grown up already mm -hmm. you know and and you think then you see the number attached to them and you go well he's still only 19. so yeah. bob, bob i was i was on the i was on the show yesterday philly sports talk on comcast Sportsnet. wonderful job by you by the way well thank you did you watch <laughs> you're welcome how'd you feel about my hair he streamed it <laughs> i i was in a car in in uh central massachusetts but um i had many people uh call me and tell me right. what a marvelous job they, you they, did and the i hair, thought they got it up there uh, <laughs> the hair had mixed reviews i have to be honest uh, that, yeah. that, that's a shame uh, but anyway, we were so we were we were on, uh, you know, talking myself, Marshall Harris, uh, Amy Fadul, and the question was, should the Sixers sit Ben Simmons for the entire season? And, and my response to that was, a, how can you answer that now? And b, I mean, if he's healthy, I mean, if he's one hundred percent healthy, you can't you can't heal more than one hundred percent. So there's really no, I mean, the only thing you're doing by by sitting him out the entire season would be, you know limiting the probability that something else happens it's not like well, you know what i'm saying thing, like like I mean, or what, what what's your thought what are your thoughts he, on that is there something to be gained from that to your a i agree to your b i agree okay absolutely agree i i do yeah and it, it is way too early you know people went nuts on twitter yesterday i was i was on a talk show yesterday and and what had happened was i had just talked to somebody in the league and they had an opinion saying I have a feeling that um, his agent might not want him to play this year. And it was his opinion. He didn't talk to the agent. The agent didn't right. come out and say, you know, I don't want him playing this right. year. And, you know, he didn't tell this guy. It wasn't a – that was just his opinion. And I put that out there, and people, again, were pissed off at me because, like, I'm a downer and how can I say this? And all. Mm -hmm. It, it wasn't that. I'm, I'm trying to point out the extremes of what this injury could be <laughs> and, and where we are right now. And you're exactly right. It's unfair. We don't know. They haven't even announced that it's definitely a Jones fracture. So we don't know if surgery, most likely – but we don't even know that yet. My my whole feeling is this, Dave, and I kind of wrote this day. Let yes, him, you did let today. Him, let this him get is, surgery. Let him yeah. get healed and right. see where you are. Plus and then that, you go from there. The, and, you're and, you know, there's no sense in getting yourself crazy right now. Well, I'll, I'll do. I'll 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 pick up on your uh, story today because it was a real thought. Like makes you think. Is a he's a rookie right now. If he if he rolls out there on opening night and tries to play, it's the Ben Simmons show and it's the Ben Simmons team and. Everything he does right and everything he does wrong is is under a, a microscope. If he's allowed, whether it's a full year or a big portion of the year, to allow this team with all of its n newest moving parts, not that it doesn't always have moving parts, but its newest moving parts and its other intriguing storylines, including Sarah, it allows them to kind of establish some sort of a team personality, and then he can roll into that personality. It seems beneficial if I was a rookie, I would prefer that scenario over the Ben Simmons show from day one. And I should say that you can read this story on Philly.com, obviously, backslash sports, mm -hmm. or just go to Philly.com and click on sports, where you can follow Bob Cooney on Twitter at Bob Cooney at 76. Bob Cooney 76, right. Twitter.com backslash Bob Cooney 76. But yeah, so Sam, sorry to interrupt. No, I I'm, thought, I'm, I'd, thought I'd... I'm keep, kind of... Re, I'm, kind of reading you people Cooney's story today which is I would recommend reading it out of his mouth because it was much more fleshed out he actually reads his stories to his kids at night <laughs> I do too my actually kids, my kids don't even know what I do for a living <laughs> get online pal daddy we want <laughs> exactly. we want Cinderella yeah. we're going to tell you about it's Ben funny, Simmons you know, foot like, kid like now the, the focus turns to okay how is this beneficial for Ben Simmons so mm -hmm. moving forward okay he's out but how's this going to help the team and, you know, I hear it. I, I hear, okay, you can see the coach's eye. You can get used to the NBA, the travel, 
the daily routine, the grind. You can do all that without physically, you know, getting it just just burnt out. But but I don't see it. I, I just don't. I, I don't. And I know the Sixers put a spin on it. They told all their players, "I'll oh, tell everybody how exciting it still is." Understand? I, I do. For fans, I hope you. I hope the God they enjoy Embiid and Saric and all. But I don't see any benefit at all to being sidelined. I really don't. There, there's. You know, you're going to make the most out of it, but Ben Simmons needs to learn the NBA, and mm-hmm. it's beneficial for this organization for him to learn the NBA. And he needs to learn it with Joel Embiid, with Jalil Okafor, with Nerlens Noel, Dario Saric. Like, this sucks. Uh, Jared Bayless said it the other day in a great way. This sucks. You know, it, it totally sucks for the team, for the organization. There's no good to come about it, but you have to move on, and that's what you do. And mm-hmm. so now the focus turns to, like Dave and I were saying earlier, turns to Joel Embiid. And, and what do you have? What do you got? How can you move him forward, and how can can the two of them play together for this organization for what they hope is years to come? You know, at the same time, it, it I agree with you. It there's no you can't put a positive spin on it, but at the same time, it happens. You know, it's not necessarily. Exactly. I think people are so conditioned with Embiid to think that a foot injury equals three years of maybe playing and maybe not playing. Like, I don't think that's a fair assumption to make about this Ben Simmons injury. Again, we've all we've all broke. Broken right. Anyone who's played sports pretty and, much has broken their foot bo- before. And in Bede's body, you can actually see how it's changed over over his injury history. You know, you, yeah. you can act, so that that you can pin the the silver lining thing on an actual visual to right. him. But let's talk about sure. Sarich because he's another guy that it's really an intriguing team, and I'm, I'm, you know, especially now with with Embiid and Sarich, there's there's still tons to watch i'm going to be watching is mm-hmm. it on tv tonight i hope it is it is it is on comcast Sportsnet. they're picking up the uh the new england feed so i i if i read this correctly it's not going to be well i know it's not going to be like your mark zoom off and stuff so it'll be the new england feed but yeah people can watch it on comcast Sportsnet tonight so, so sarge i know you haven't been able to wa- i mean you're not allowed to watch all of of training camp you know and at least the day i was there we got in for the last maybe 10 minutes of, of a scrimmage but what have you heard and in your limited time seen from Sarich, what is his role going to be on this team? Is he NBA ready? What, on a contending team, what would he be? And on the Sixers, what is he going to be? He's, you know, on the Sixers, I would say he's a big part. He's a big piece, and especially now with Simmons out. Um, you know, is I, he I a foreman? Like right after he, um, right after he signed with the Sixers, I was in Las Vegas for summer league, and I talked to about five executives who had seen him play over in Turkey, uh, you know, multiple times. And I kind of just wrote a compilation of what they thought his game was and how it would translate to the NBA. And, and pretty much for the most part, it was, uh, uh, you know, an, a way above ba- average ball handler, a way above average passer, a physical guy, someone who might be a little bit slow afoot and have trouble keeping up if, if teams try to, if the Sixers try to make him a three, probably better suited to play the four, needs to work on his outside shooting, although it has improved. But, but very, very mature and, and very, you know, basketball-wise and, and uh, as far as a 22-year-old goes. <laughs> so I, I think that's what you're going to see. If the Sixers become a, a really good team, if they become, you know, if, if everything kind of pans out, I, I envision right now Dario Saric being a very good role player on that team. I, I don't know if he's a starter. I don't know if he's a stud. I, I just see him as a very good role player. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I mean, that that's something the team sorely needs. I don't say that in a negative way well, at all. When, so when, uh, the, the thing this year, and right now, and I'm writing this tomorrow for Thursday's paper, is Dario Saric got done his Turkish league, long season, went straight to uh, Olympic qualifying tournament where he was named MB- MVP over in Italy in what was just a dogfight of a tournament, went straight to the Olympics where his team got to the medal round, Got done that, took a few days off, boom, welcome to the NBA, son, here's a bunch of minutes. 
he's going to hit that rookie wall a lot faster than most rookies do, and he might be just about getting there now. So it's something I talked to Brett Brown about it today. It's something that they really have to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Brett Brown, it, it, it's it's one of the most interesting stories in sports. Is a guy that seemingly still is held in high regard, despite uh, no great, at least NBA physical evidence that he's head coaching material for the long run. Do you get any sense that he is in any more of a precarious position now than he was, you know, two losing seasons ago? Probably. I mean, in all honesty, probably because, um, you know, he and Sam Hinkie were on the same page. They knew that this was going to take a while. Mm-hmm. All right, Brian Colangelo comes in, and basically he sees what it's been. He wants to move it forward quickly, and, and of course he's going to make judgment. You know, he, he's going to be watching Brett Brown as, as closely as Sam Hinkie was watching draft picks and, and, and different things like that. So, yeah, moving forward, I, I think Brian Colangelo – Whereas Sam Hinkie was maybe, you know, all right, we have Brett in place, let's look at other things. I think Colangelo is very much looking at Brett Brown to see if he's the type of coach that that can move this team forward. And you're right, Sam, uh, we don't know. We just don't know, and and Brett knows it. Brett knows that people don't know what he's all about because, quite simply, he hasn't had an NBA team to coach. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he might want to coach and run a play where A goes to B and B goes to C. He didn't have players that could get the ball to B. And, and, you know, that's the frustrating part that it's been for Brett Brown. And, that, and, and you know, that's what Sixers fans have seen so far. So, yeah, this year it'll be interesting now that he, that he has some NBA talent. You want to see this team moving forward a little bit. Last question on uh, uh, Sarich, because I'm still – again, this guy's so much of a mystery to everybody. Uh, you know, we just haven't seen him, and we haven't seen him against, against competition. He's a basketball so I, player, though, it sounds like. Right. But I, so, so my question to you, Bob Cooney, is um, what kind of player – are we going to expect to see just in terms of mold? I'm going to give you some names like Haydu Turkaloo, Dirk Nowitzki, Troy Murphy, um, wow, Richard. Lu- I mean, Dirk like Nowitzki to Troy Murphy. You no, know, I'm, I'm saying. I, I mean, are we talking a guy? <laughs> I know, like, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, Styles. Yeah. Like, give me your. Uh, Give me your uh, – here we go, Danny. I just searched six-foot-ten guys. Danny Ferry. I, I, just find I, Danny Ferry? I, <laughs> I went on basketball reference and I searched uh, – uh, players six foot ten or greater that had more than eighty two three point field goal attempts in a season. I don't know if I don't know if if uh, Sarich would fit that build uh, mold if he was a starter, but um, he could shoot a little bit, correct? Ryan Anderson, there's another one. Yeah, a little bit. Not not Ryan Anderson. My God, I can shoot the I mean, is he going to be a guy with us back to the basket? Is he be, is he going to be a guy? Um, he, he can do a little bit of everything, Dave. It's it's funny. Here's 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 the guy, and I. Maybe after I describe, we can we can figure somebody out. But, you know, he's a guy that could grab a rebound and, like, look up and see something happening and throw a pass that, that a lot of other people, especially mm. 6'10 people, right. don't see okay. and throw at the length of the court. He could dribble the length of the court, throw a kick out. He can go to the basket. He'll miss a shot and he'll bang and he's tough. Uh, he's that kind of player. But well, You just described Larry Bird, by the way. I don't know if the it was day you were there. Hits a 20-footer. You know, as the clock's running out, a, a nice come off a pick, right. rotate it over, boom, bangs a 20-footer. So he's kind of a versatile guy that has a toughness to him, but he's going to struggle a little bit because of foot speed in the NBA. So you know, <laughs> again, you just described Larry Bird. <laughs> well, it sounds to me like you're you're. It sounds to me like you're describing a young Ben Simmons. 
<laughs> he, it's funny. I was talking to Tyler the other day. Doesn't run as well. They are similar. He goes, we are similar. He said, he's bigger, he's stronger, he's faster, and he's more skilled than me. But we're similar. Like, yeah, <laughs> sounds like it. That, that's probably so, that's probably why the Larry Bird comparison doesn't work very well too. But yeah, all the, poor, but poor all those checklists. Simmons, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the uh, I asked about. I mean, he averaged like two and a half three point attempts per game. I think in the Olympics, um, he didn't hit. <laughs> I think he hit like a half, like zero point five of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's but, a difference between a shooter and a maker, as you very right. well know. No, I know. So I'm looking. So so who are we? Who we got? What, was he, what did he give, mean give by me, that, Dave? Give me your an NBA. Uh, <laughs> give me an give me an NBA comparison then. Um, well, I'm looking at some funny names right here. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> It's 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 just so hard to say because I, I you know part of me is, is hesitant because I hate the way people jump on things and you know I, although I shouldn't be like that but I, I just it, it's also hard because I haven't seen him play live I, right. I haven't and you know I've seen him on TV and I don't know what the competition exactly he was going up against all the times that I watched him um, I, I you know our, our best thing right now because people probably have familiarized themselves with Ben Simmons would be a poor man Ben Simmons. Um. God, you're gonna throw some names out there because I know that you're just no, I'm not because I, I I haven't seen the guy play either, so I can't. I was just gonna throw Rafe LaFrance out there because he makes me laugh when I think of him. Kansas boy, Rafe LaFrance. God, I'm so old. It's like a, I was talking to my buddy the you're other getting, day. You know, like, sympathy from that. You know, you know, yeah, creep. Who are you talking to? <laughs> 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 know your audience, when pal. You're say something like that. I got up today. I was like a hundred years old. Well, first of all, it, it, we creak when we get up. Yeah, aging is no, exponential. No, 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 no! Don't lump me in there yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was talking to my buddy the other day, and I was telling him like the first time I really felt old from a sports perspective was when Shaquille O'Neal retired. So like, like that was like the first benchmark when players that I remember seeing mm-hmm. in college started retiring. Yeah. And now the second benchmark is is all these guys have kids that are playing like uh, uh, Christian McCaffrey, right. uh, Del yeah. Rio's kid. Like every time I lo- I, I look, you know, Glenn Robinson. Every time I turn on the television and watch a college game or even now a pro game, I hear a last name and I'm like, no, don't, no, there's no way. It hit me the other day, and maybe you guys don't, but I'm looking up on Twitter or something. I think the the Cleveland Cavaliers tweeted out, "Happy birthday, Mike Dunleavy, 37 years old." Wow. I'm like, what? Right. I thought he just won a championship at Duke like two years ago, mm-hmm. you know, and then yeah. he is 37 years old already. Right, so right. Yeah, I it's... remember his dad being on the Sixers. So. Right. <laughs> so his dad is though. still coaching, right? Is he's he somewhere? Yeah. I'm not sure exactly where he is, but he's somewhere. The uh, last one before we let you go. Uh, what are you doing the rest of the day anyway? So I just uh, got back to my hotel room. A couple of the other writers got a pizza, so they were nice enough to save me a couple of pieces. Oh, that, that's I'll a great sit down beat, and by I'll the way. Transcribe uh, everything that we got today. Put together most of today's column for tomorrow. We'll talk to Joe LMB tonight. He didn't talk to us today. So we'll talk to him before game. So I'm, I'm going to keep a close eye on him, and, and uh, we'll give the fans everything they want to know about Joel Embiid for tomorrow. And then, like I said, Wednesday for Thursday, uh, I really want to get into Dario Saric and, and you know how he can help this team, where he is basketball-wise, what it's like for him you know, coming to a new country and, and, and just being thrown into an absolute fire. So uh, there, there's a lot of storylines around this team, which is something that hasn't been around for three years, and it's, it's hopefully fun to – Fun for people to read. It's certainly fun for us to cover. Absolutely. My, I, Mike Dunleavy Sr. is the oldest uh, first-year Division One coach at Tulane, wow. where his assistant is our good friend, Bob. Who's our good friend? Doug Stewart? Uh, Maloney? No, Doug no. Stewart. Yeah, Doug Stewart. Oh, Doug Stewart. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. I had to feel boy. <laughs> so, no, I asked, so, so, Cooney, I asked you this, uh, I asked you this the, the 
day I was out at, at Stockton searching for parking spots and stories, um, I asked you who, who's going to be a starting five on opening night. Uh, so now with the Simmons injury, I'm going to ask you again, who, who, who's okay. going to be starting five on opening on opening night. And, and then give me kind of the, the minute, the minutes per game you see of guys like Sarge and everybody and, and MB. Yeah. minutes per game right, for, for Sarge. No and problem. Here's what I'm going to go with opening night. I'll say your backcourt. And I think this is pretty rock solid. Jared Bayless and Gerald Henderson will probably be your starting backcourt. I think you'll have, um, Robert Covington at the three. I think they'll go Dario Saric at the four and Joel Embiid at the five. Uh, Minute-wise, uh, you know, I, I think they're really, really going to ease Embiid into it. So probably Jalil Okafor getting 25 minutes, maybe more off the bench, something like that. I think you'll see them paired every once in a while. I think Brett Brown wants to see them offensively, defensively. It might be a nightmare, but they might be implementing something of a, you know, maybe you throw in a little bit of a zone defense or, or, or some kind of a junk uh, a junk zone that you can now do in the NBA uh, defensively to, to, to try to guard those guys against having to run out on the perimeter and, and cover people. So uh, Nerland's Noel, I, he's going to get his minutes somehow, some way. I, I, just, I just get a feeling, and it's not that I can get it verified, I just have a feeling he's the odd man out. And uh, I think it's incumbent upon him to really show something. I think they want to take a long look at Nick Stauskas and, and see if, if you know his shooting – can can come about and open things up for different people the scary thing is like i said to you earlier murph is that they're going to throw him at the point a little bit during this preseason that makes me think they're not real happy with his outside shooting the thing so i noticed about get him in other places the thing i noticed about stauskas and and again this was based on a five minute sample size after after practice pretty much is it me or does he have a really slow release for a guy who's yeah spreading? you and i were talking about that he he kind of does he needs some room and you know what? That, that's what Ben Simmons affords you. And, and you hope that Dario Saric will do that. And the big guys, you know, there will be some collapsing in on them. But, but he needs room. And when he has the room, I've seen it. I've seen it in practice. And all. When he has the room, he can stroke it. But, but he get, he's just, I think he has a mental thing. I think he's very um, – and he and I have talked about this. I, I think he gets on himself really quickly. I think he gets down on himself really quickly. And I think his, his confidence – can really drain fast, and, and he's got to guard against that, and, and he's got to figure out a way. He's, he did a better job in the second half of last year getting to the basket. If he can get some baskets that way, maybe it'll get him going with his outside stroke, but this is a real important year for him. It could also, I mean, it could also be, you know, in practice, you know, definitely at Michigan. I mean, he's a guy that has the, the ball in his hands a lot. He knows he's going to be out there a lot. Uh, you know, he knows he can miss. And, and you know find a stroke and, and come back and hit hit three in a row but I mean when you're a, when you're a rotational player in the NBA and you're coming off the bench 15 20 25 minutes a game like you know you nec- you don't necessarily have time to, yeah. f- to find your groove do you know what I'm saying yeah no absolutely and I talked to beeline about that last year he came to a sixers uh, practice and I asked him I said you know Nick and I have talked about it just a little mental uh, he says yeah he's got to keep his confidence up mm-hmm. he's got to you know, believe in himself, and, and and you're right, Murph. It's not like Michigan. It's not like college where that's all right. You miss one, you take another. Yeah. Well, here it's here it's kind of cutthroat. That kind of happened. That kind of happened. That kind of happened. I so. thought I'm doing this off memory to JJ Redick early, early NBA career was he wasn't getting enough minutes to be JJ Redick, and people were like, oh, you know, flash in the pan, college star kind of thing. I mean, you you couldn't have foreseen the long career that he ended up having. Yeah, hey Murph, was it me and you who were talking about, about Reddick at yeah. the training camp? Yep. That's, that's funny you bring that up, Sam. And I said this to Murph. The thing about J.J. Reddick and, and, and where I say that, that, that Stauskas really has to get tough mentally, 
J.J. Redick is one of the toughest mental guys in the NBA. And he he never believed he wasn't good. Right. To get better and to become as good as he's become. Yeah. And if you look up his numbers, he's he's one of the best three-point shooters yep. in NBA history. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, it's actually funny. Somebody was telling me, I, I forget who it was, uh, that J.J. It might have been Pompey, actually. Keith Pompey was telling me, like, Redick, I don't know if they went to high school in the same area or what, but, like, Redick would, like, uh, you know, like he had like some street cred in high school. Like he would like roll up to the playground and like he would have some swag. And like yeah. people would be, he wouldn't just be he, like, he wouldn't just be the white boy shooter. Like people would like he got a little Christian Leitner in him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he had, he he got he got his props on on you know he's got that and, and he made himself a lot bigger too. I mean he's he's yeah, a big yeah. boy now. You know he's a work he's a workout fiend. And I like you know I know people that are very good friends with him and very you know work out with him and know him professionally and. The, 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 he he falls second to no one as far as preparation, getting himself ready, and changing himself to an NBA player. And I I, I really appreciate that in a mm, person. You know, this mm-hmm. kid came out of Duke as just a great great shooter. Who's who's not to say any of us would roll into the NBA just relying on that? And he just totally worked himself into a complete NBA mm-hmm. player, let alone one of the best shooters around. All right, Bobby. Well, go get your pizza, man. I feel bad now that you mentioned that. That there's no. These... That's all right. It's uh, it's piping cold. No big deal. <laughs> it's a time change anyway. It's still still morning there, right? In Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, yeah. I guess. Yeah, Is that I, how it I works? I think we're about on the same uh, time <laughs> there, Sam. Kidding. But um... yeah, I think I think I know my Massachusetts pretty well. It's just yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. They're all they're all. Uh... We had it. Well, my old school, by the way, had a clown scare yesterday. We, Uh-oh. we all calmed down. But oh, I read a, that we, up here. We had an armed clown on campus. I did <laughs> see that up here. It was a big story on the news. Where yeah. is that at? Yeah, Merrimack. Merrimack College in North Andover. Not, okay. Not what is what is wrong with kids? <laughs> I don't know. North Andover is <laughs> only about, what, 10 miles from here, Sam? No, where are you now? Amherst. Yeah, no, you're a good two and a half hours away. Yeah, you're over by Springfield. Oh, really? Yeah. North Andover is up by New Hampshire. Cla- oh, North Andover. I'm thinking yeah, of Northampton. Yeah, Northampton's right near here. Yeah, right? North Andover is what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I, heard right. clown, I heard clowns have a very large range, though, so you better watch <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah, clowns are, clowns are very mobile. All right, Bobby. All right, guys, thanks. Have a good one. All right. And here they are, the dynamic duo on the Phillies beat, Bert and Ernie. It's Matt Breen and Statler and Wardoff. I like the rubber ducky. The rubber ducky. Matt Breen and Matt Gelb are here, fresh off another... Uh, the, uh, the slam bang roller coaster thrill ride of a Philly season. <laughs> How many games did you watch this year? <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I did not watch any games that I was not at, unless they happened to be on at the bar that I was drinking at. That columnist life is really rough, huh? It is. it is. It is. But if you read, you know, the hard work of ours, it kind of feels like you watched the game, feels like you were there. It That's does. How good the stuff is. It does. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's four hundred <laughs> words of pure experience. <laughs> it's more than four hundred <laughs> words. Is it? Is it? Five fifty is what I try to shoot for. Okay. Then I hit send. We uh, we're gonna talk about the Phillies specifically when we might expect this team to be competitive because I get the sense that the answer is not next year. Um, the answer is not next year. Did you did you look at uh, did you read uh, Salisbury's uh, epic interview with John Middleton? Apparently, it lasted like two hours. I have read it. I've heard a lot of the same things. Or watched said. it. I mean, I think you know what? Who's who's was right about this all along, and the timetable still stands. Was what Pat Gillick said maybe two years ago at this point. Was that look, we're probably not going to be competitive until about 2018 or 2019, and that was the timetable that the incoming front office was really operating on. What um is there any so there's no reason to think that that was expedited this year? I I think next year they won't be 
competitive like hunting in the wild card hunt, but I think they're going to be a step below that where they're at least like in the mix after that. I think they'll be a little bit better this year. They won't. Well, I mean, they how are they going to get better? Well, I think guys get older, so you have these young pitchers with another year of experience. So I think they'll be a little bit better. A lot of the young hitters, you know, get a three hundred plate appearances or whatever under their belt. I think they'll be better. And then if whoever they add, plus the influx of J.P. Crawford and Nick Williams, who you know, and Dylan Cousins, whoever comes up next year, I, I think you know by default they're going to be a little bit better. Not still not competing for a wild card, but I think right under that. I, I mean, JP I, Craw- was, I will say this: looking at J.P. Crawford's line at AAA, he would definitely fit right in this lineup. I don't think there is any way the offense is worse than it was this year. It's almost impossible. Uh, they scored the fewest runs in baseball by about 40 runs. They had the wor- second worst on base percentage, second worst slugging percentage, second worst batting average. They will get better there. Uh, even if it's just by accident, they'll get better there. Uh, but they will have J.P. Crawford and Nick Williams, and I know we said this probably six months ago that they would play in the majors, and they didn't, and it's not because the Phillies didn't choose to bring them up. It's because they played their way out of promotions, but – if they're not in the majors by July 1, 2017, something has gone terribly wrong, in my opinion. If they're not on there by July 1st, I'll never come on this podcast again. <laughs> I don't think you're going to have to worry about that there, big guy. Uh, so, well, let's I, go. I don't, I don't know how much better they're going to be next year. I think they'll be more watchable as, as they were this year. They were certainly more watchable in 2016 than they were in 2015. And I think the same thing applies for 2017. They'll be more watchable. But remember, this is a team that got outscored by like 185-ish runs this year. Worst run differential in baseball. About the same as it was last year. And I think what was interesting about them is that the Phillies at the end were the Phillies that we thought we'd see in April. Mm. And the Phillies in April were the Phillies that we thought we'd see in September. So what does that mean? Does it mean it was a bad season? Does it mean – I don't know. I don't think it means anything. I think they can feel good about a few guys, feel bad about a couple other guys, and – you know, they just kind of move forward. I don't know that there was really any great expectations here. Yeah, well, and it sounds like Green's expectations are pretty great. <laughs> They're not great. I just think it, by default you're going to get better. The Phillies of well, well, first of all, life does not work that way. Well, by you don't just get better by well, default. These guys are going to get better. Ask, ask the 2011 Phillies. The biggest question for me is that Aaron Nola, Zach Eflin, Vince Velasquez. You know, I know Vince Velasquez didn't get injured this year at the end, but there was some concern that he had something up. And the be- re- real reason they were competitive in the beginning of the season is because they had a the pitching staff, as de- by design, was in place, and the bullpen was, you know, not overused or was still had was run getting a little bit of luck, I guess, and was still pretty decent. And I think that's the advantage of next year is that if if everything goes your way, Aaron Noll is healthy, Zach Eflin's healthy. Vince Velasquez is healthy. Um, you know, they add a veteran or whatever, and you, you'll have pretty good starting Zach pitching. Eflin, by the way, who posted a 5.54 year. Yeah, the last three starts were bad, though, and it was when the knee – and you could tell the knees yeah. were killing him. And I, the biggest thing that's going to happen between now and April 1st is not a signing, not a trade. It's whether Aaron Nola is going to be in the rotation or not, whether he needs Tommy John surgery or so not. So that's still a question. It's still a question. I mean, I think within the front office, they are cautiously optimistic that he won't. He started a throwing program already. He hasn't faced hitters yet. Uh, but they should know by the end of October uh, with relative certainty whether he will need surgery or not. And that's huge. I mean, if he needs surgery, he's out for 17. He's out for part of 18. 
he is a solid mid-rotation guy, and I know people are tired of hearing about that, but that is really important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think if you were looking at bright spots, you would probably say Jared Eikhoff. Absolutely. Yeah, he made 33 starts. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Jared Eikhoff is a solid presence in your rotation for the next five years. Yeah. I mean, well, he really is. What was the stat? He allowed three earned runs or less in 27 of his 33 starts. It's pretty incredible. Absolutely. I think he uh, – I don't, I don't know that anybody – I mean, I expected him to regress somewhat this year. And, I, I mean, obviously he did a little bit from, you know, what those numbers he posted in that whatever 10-start stretch. But he was pretty pretty darn good. 3.65 ERA, 7.6 strikeouts per nine, only uh, less than two walks per nine. You know, the one, the one concern with him, obviously, and the reason why I don't think – to me, if you're a contending team, you want him as your fifth starter. Fourth. You know, fourth or fifth starter. Yeah. Joe Blanton-ish, you know. Um because again, like he his fastball is very straight, and he gives up a lot of home runs. But uh, only twenty three of those thirty home runs were twenty three of those thirty home runs were solo home runs. I believe. Well, um, so I guess the question is, and I guess the other thing that changed over the course of the season is the bullpen came back down to earth a little bit. Jean Mar turns out is not the next lights out ledge. Shocked! I couldn't believe it. P- people are going to be people are not going to like this opinion, but I thought the most positive development they had this season was Vince Velasquez. Vince Velasquez, to me, you saw that this guy, this guy could be a number one starter in a rotation, and I truly believe that. And I know he was maddening at times because he had these 30-pitch first innings. He ran so many deep counts. He couldn't get past five innings a lot of nights. But you saw a guy who started to pick it up at the end, who started to understand, I cannot strike every single guy out, because that is actually what he thought at the beginning of the season, and that's fine. That was... That's a great mentality to have, but he's learning. He has tremendous stuff. He, I think that the fact that they got him through as many starts as they did without a really serious injury problem, and that injury that he had in July or June was it wasn't made up, but he didn't need to go on the DL for that. They just decided to give him a little rest. He was the most positive development of the year for me because he took the ball almost every fifth day until they shut him down and showed you that there was a lot in there that can grow and could be a really top-flight sort of pitcher. So am I wrong in worrying constantly about – well, not worrying is the proper word, but he he just looks like – his arm looks like a ticking time bomb at times to me. Every um, arm is a ticking time yeah. bomb right now. But, I mean, he just throws so hard, and he has such a kind of a violent motion. Uh, you know, is there any concern for that from the organization standpoint, or do you think this was just a kind of a hiccup here in June when he was on the deal? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a – you know, overly concerned. I mean, that was a big concern. Right. Like, like he was the reason well, why they re- reworked the Astros. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. has a, he has a bad history of health problems, so they there's always going to be concern. But in Major League Baseball in the year 2016, every pitcher is a health problem. I mean, it is just no one has figured it out yet. And actually, that is the great next market inefficiency. If you want to go all money ball on it, is mm-hmm. a team that figures out how to uh, prevent injuries to pitchers or at least identify what causes them what causes them or, or fl- red flags and potential acquisitions that team will be the next great team and no one's going to trade you their power arm pitching prospect you know unless he does have some red flags and i think the phillies took a gamble and it looks like it I, I, like you said it's a very positive first year from vince Velasquez. so here's a question how do you add to this lineup and i always go back to to the trade theo epstein made uh, when he traded who, uh, a very similar prospect of Vasquez and uh, Andrew Kashner for Anthony Rizzo. And that really, you know, that was the move to me that, that made that team. 
is there any chance the Phillies look to get creative this offseason? And, and, you know, if not Velasquez, then I don't know. I don't even know who else would have value on the market um, to get a young power bat. But, what, you know, how are they going to improve this lineup? Because it just isn't there in free agency. I think they'll definitely try to be creative. I thought they were creative last year with the Ken Giles trade. I would, you know, expect to see something similar to that if it's Odubel Herrera or Hector Neris, somebody that is oh, an asset so, so, to you at so the time. Odubel Herrera. Well, let's stop. I'm, I'm just wait, not. No, I'm curious because yeah. I, I was on uh, I was on Philly Sports Talk yesterday, and Jim Salisbury said the cheap this, plug. Yeah, Philly Salisbury said the same thing, or uh, Jimmy Salisbury said the same thing. Uh, he said Naris and Herrera. So what what about Herrera? Do you think would make sense to move? If they think they're selling high, okay. And if they, you know, they invested fifty grand in the Rule Five draft to get Odubel Herrera, and in his first two seasons, he really cannot ask for more. Uh, now I think the question that they'll have to answer internally is: Is this as good as it gets? Uh, how do our coaches feel about him? How do our scouts feel about him? How do other teams feel about him? If other teams value him highly, they could be they could say, "Well, let's cash in." And is he a piece of the of the next contending Phillies team, or is he a guy that we could you know is expendable now? Trade him and get kind of like they did with Ken Giles. You get assets back, and you hope one of those guys or two of those guys in the trade is part of the next contending Phillies. Well, team. Well, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but let's play the. The, the devil's advocate here. What about a 781 OPS and 15 home runs out of center field would make you at 24 years old would make you not a part of the next Phillies contender? Because you have guys like Nick Williams, who you're gonna have to find a spot for him, or you know, maybe he's an expendable asset. Um, Dylan Cousins, find a spot for him. There, you know, Mickey Moniak eventually is going to be part of the next contending Phillies team. So he's an asset where you, you have the chance now to, like Gelb said, to sell high, and I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's what they do. I think a lot of the reason why Roman Quinn was in the majors in September was not because just to see Roman Quinn, he, he deserved it, he played very well this year, but it was to see how expendable can Odubel Herrera be. If Roman Quinn is a guy who we think can, can bat first or second and play an elite-level center field and get on base and create havoc on the bases, then maybe Odubel Herrera is expendable, but... Uh, I don't know that they feel that way about Roman Quinn right now because he just can't stay on the field, and that's a shame. He's he's very talented. So that maybe that is that is training. one case that is one check mark for in the column for keeping Odubel Herrera is because Quinn Quinn has not established himself as a guy like okay this guy's going to play 140 games for me next year in the majors. He, he probably won't. He also strikes out a lot. Remember Little Giants when that kid shows up to practice, his mom dressed him in like all those pads so he wouldn't get hurt. That's Roman Quinn <laughs> next year. Little Giants. Wasn't Great that, movie. Wasn't that like uh, Rick Moranis? Yeah. Wow. Probably his best work. <laughs> <laughs> the other, I mean, the other, so then the checkmark against Adubel Herrera would be obviously his performance from July on, which is 266, 323 on base percentage, 401. So like you said, 124 FPS, which, you know, league average bat, I guess, in center field. Again, you're not going to, I think, how, how, how did, forget the metrics, how did, how did internally do you think the Phillies graded his defense this year? Because that's a big. I mean, if, average to above average. Who was this? Uh, Herrera. Because I mean, it's hard. Like the metrics the, really, really liked him, mm-hmm. and I'm not so sure that I agree with the metrics. So watching him on an everyday basis, and I know that the coaching staff is divided. Let's say on 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 his center field performance, and you could very well see him play left field in 
uh, winter ball. See, at that point, year. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna start changing him to the corner outfitter, then to me, you have to trade him because he's not a corner. I mean, he, those aren't numbers of a guy that you want to hang on to in, in the corner outfield. You and know? we both were told sometime in the summer that don't be surprised to see Herrera move to the left. And this has been Altera just first came up, making a really good first impression that first week to see him play center because of how kind of graceful he is in center field. He plays a really good outfield. At, at this point, no one has moved Odubel Herrera from center field. If, if Altera sure. had hit really well and played better, maybe he moves Herrera to a corner. If Quinn comes up and stays in the field and, and really impresses, maybe he moves Herrera to a corner. But right now, no one has moved Herrera to a corner. I guess, I mean, Altera's a great example of why it's tough to really make any move to make room quote-unquote for a guy who hasn't hit major league pitching yet I mean Altair you know kind of had the John Mayberry Jr. finish the last year and then the John Mayberry Jr. start to this year which was 202 304 293 again you know he has less than 400 plate appearances in his career but you know there's no guarantee that Roman Quinn even if you make room for him or Nick Williams even if you make room for him can hit the way a double Herrera at least has shown he can do through a thousand plate appearances correct no definitely correct you got a little Giants reference that that can kind of probably a different 90s kids move embellish that point one okay but but I think that's why you're not going to see them go out also and shell out like a four-year deal for a corner outfielder uh if anything they're going to make an incremental move and and just defer to more time of seeing these guys you know because Aaron Altera they'll look at him and say okay well he's not the guy we saw in 2015 He's probably not the guy we saw in 2016. He's probably somewhere in between. Okay, well, how in between is he? Uh, and Roman and he was Quinn, off we injury. don't know enough about him. And, and Nick Williams, yeah, we expect Nick Williams to be playing every day in the majors by July 1, let's say. So uh, they don't want to commit themselves to someone, to a, to a veteran outfielder who's maybe a little above league average right now when they're really not sure what they have. So, again, I think you'll see a trade. You know, maybe a, a, the best way they can upgrade for 2017 is by either – signing or acquiring a, a veteran corner outfielder on a short-term deal, maybe a guy who's going to be non-tendered, sort of like Peter Borges last year, but someone who hits better than Peter Borges. Uh, and the free agent market is not great, so they're not going to get into bidding wars over Josh Reddick or Ian Desmond or Ioannis Cespedes. Uh, so. Well, I mean, Josh Reddick likes pro wrestling, so I'd be all for that signing. Everybody, uh, I mean, everybody who was clamoring for – uh, Jason Hayward last year, I think, saw why they should not have been clamoring. Yeah. Why the Phillies should not be... He's the case in point of why they should not be investing money long-term when you know you need the guy to be good three years from now, not this yeah. year. Do you know what I'm saying? They have all the money in the world, and it's just a matter of when all they of spend it? it. They have every single That's a lot of money. in the entire world. They even have your money. They do have a lot of money. They have a ton of yeah. money. And they, and they will spend it. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who are like thinking about like the mid-90s awful horrible veteran mm. stadium days when when the ownership really was not interested in spending money these guys will spend money and, and they're gonna spend it smartly and they're gonna do it when it's just a matter of time may not when be they're smart gonna do it. but they're right. gonna spend well, it. well i think they're having a smart approach to it they're not just spending it to spend it right now when they could yeah I what the, i mean to me like the most it would seem the most logical thing for them to do would would be to bring in a left-handed bat uh who could uh platoon with aaron Altair. Or platoon start. with Tommy Joseph. Yeah, right. That's a good point. Because, I mean, Altair still hit, you know, he still had some success against lefties this year um, in, in a limited sample size. And Tommy Joseph, that's another good name to bring up. W- what does the future hold for Tommy Joseph? What what was the reaction uh, moving forward? How did he change his long-term outlook in this organization this year? 
vastly. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't even on the – he was removed from the 40-man roster a year ago, and uh, for me, qualifies as the greatest surprise of the season. I don't even think it's close. Uh, Tommy Joseph, <laughs> in, main, in minor league camp, he was a guy that people had been saying, boy, he might – he might be cut at the end of camp. He doesn't have a spot right now. We don't have a spot for him. He had such a bad year last year. He's hurt. He's getting older. Uh, he was a cut candidate coming into minor league spring training and then had a pretty darn good year. He improved his on-base percentage at the end. He was very near league average. Uh, I still think he probably is a platoon first baseman. He improved at first base. They could let him be the everyday guy next year, but he has a spot on the team in 2017. I think that's pretty. Yeah, his final yeah. his final numbers: 257 average, 308 on base percentage, 505 slugging percentage for an 815 OPS. OPS plus had him at 15 percent better than league average hitter, and then of course 20 wow 21 home runs and 347 plate appearances. That ain't too shabby. You know who's a guy uh, who would fit the bill that you just described? Uh, our old friend Brandon Moss. Uh, first, he, he's a guy that's out there. He's yes. a left-handed, left-handed bat, first baseman, outfielder. Probably not gonna, you know, coming off a little bit of a down stretch in his career. And, could and be the Phillies are in a spot where they can overpay exactly. for a guy if it's a short term. If Brandon Moss will take a two-year deal with a high average annual salary, they're fine with that. That's the thing is it doesn't it doesn't matter how much money they have. It matters the luxury tax because the luxury tax is constructed at this point to almost be. A poison pill and you can't be the Yankees anymore and go over it so you can't you can lock up any money you want over the next couple of years what you can't do is like reduce your spending power for the years when you're actually going to be good because no one wants to be like say oh we can't try to bid on Eric Hosmer because we signed <laughs> Brandon Moss so and that's years. why yeah. they would be averse to even a three-year deal I think for a guy right, right now because they're looking at the, the free agent class after 18 and even after 19 is like, we're going all in here. Right. Literally all in. And if they're going to sign a guy or acquire a guy this year, he's either going to have one year on his deal or going to have two years on his deal. Really? That's it. Yeah. I could see, I mean, you got to get better at those corners. Like it's, as you said, it's almost impossible not to get better at those corner outfield spots. Right. Is how about, you know, here's another guy. Remember, remember who, remember who, their majority of the starts in left field this year were, were made by Cody first Ashey, Cedric right? Hunter, then Tyler Goodell, right. Cody Ashey, so a little bit of Peter Borges. It was guys really, that will be on the team next year. Really bad. The, I mean, um, about as bad. Another as you can first be. base idea, and this came up Friday. Pete McCannon had a, and the coaches have had a big meeting with the front office on Friday to go over the the whole season and you know looking ahead to next year. And he comes out and he says he was just throwing this out there. He said. But they talked about if people could change positions, such as Michael Franco to first but base. But I don't understand that. Like, why would you move Michael Franco to first base? But it just—it seems like that was at least he says he was just throwing this out there. But it's—he just left this big meeting where I'm sure this obviously was a talking point. So, I mean, what do you think? Do you think that were they a, un, were they uninspired by Franco's defense this year? Or is no. there a third baseman that they they could want? I, I think the point. Yeah, that, I mean, if you can sign, if it's the. Yeah, I think the point was that it's hard for us to find a spot right now where we want we can commit to a guy to acquiring a new guy without displacing somebody. And the idea was like, well, if we have a third baseman that we really like or we can really get, well, we could theoretically grab a guy there because we can move Michael Franco to first right. base. But they, I don't know that they want to do that because Franco was pretty good at third base. And third and base want, is harder to fill than first right. Base. And you want to keep him at third base as long as humanly possible. It, it, will he end up at first base eventually? 
probably yeah probably the year that he shows up to training camp at 400 pounds i'm waiting for that he's got like yeah i mean i don't know i think michael franco needs to do a little buckling down at some point he seems he seems to need some focus i think take him to the gym with you no i'm not saying that he just has that body type where if you're not if you're not putting in the work you know it's going to expand I'm not all about lineup protection. I know that a lot of sabermetricians would say there's a myth to that. I think he needs a, a guy behind him. For yeah, sure. the, I the mean, mental like, thing. I, I it, think that, it yeah. definitely does. I think it's a psychology thing. Yep. You know, like I think he's the kind of guy. You're, you know, I would like to see him in a good lineup where he doesn't feel like he has to do everything, and where he has older guys telling him, "Dude, like we're behind you. Don't swing at that three-one yeah. pitch in the dirt just to see if you know." Um, Speaking of surprises, Cameron Rupp, I would qualify as a bit of a surprise. Yep. But even on the broadcast, you know, you always know kind of where the organization is trending negatively when people, you know, the broadcast is actually mentioning things. Like they would, they would be very outspoken about Cameron Rupp's game calling ability, and that kind of told me a little something about what the Phillies think of Cameron Rupp's game calling ability. I would think is that there are that got, some concerns there. Has it has it got? That's very ominous. That's an ominous way to put it. Like, can you can you expand on that? I think Cameron Rupp is going to be a good major league backup catcher. Okay. And I think he's a fine placeholder for right now while they buy some more time for Jorge Alfaro, who clearly needs to go to AAA next year, has a ton of potential, all the potential in the world. He needs more time in the minors, and Cameron Rupp is fine for right now. You just uh, said that as if there's, like, a cave where people are sitting around, like, talking about what to do with Cameron Rupp. <laughs> Where do you put Andrew like, Knapp at if Alfaro goes to triple A and Rupp's here with you know and they bring in a veteran catcher? Knapp would be him? a first baseman catcher DH for the Oakland A's. Did he have a good year this year? Yeah. Not particularly and there's a lot of a lot of pass balls, a lot of concerns about defense. Uh maybe the worst thing that happened to him was like those thirty games he had at Reading at the end of twenty fifteen when he was on fire incredible Incredible. and and really you know really put himself on the radar uh that's tough to live up to i mean he was ridiculous for those 30 games and i don't know how they're going to split the playing time at triple a i mean i think nap you know nap could be part of a trade this winter i think that's pretty clear a lot of a lot of scouts from other organizations have been watching him and, and, and view him as a possible trade guy interesting how about uh our boy uh my God, this guy. This guy's season. Cesar, Herna- Cesar Hernandez. Is Cesar Hernandez the most maddening player in Major League Baseball? I'll tell you yes. what. He's not the most Madden player in Major League Baseball. That, <laughs> would, be Ma- that would be Matt Breen. I'll tell you about our Madden matchup in a second. Cesar Hernandez is going to be the starting second baseman next year, at least at the start of the year, and he deserves to be. Yeah, I mean, his final line, that's why I ask, because like, you look at his final numbers, he was the only guy who got on base. 290, 294, 371, 764. He he actually started to become the hitter at least. That if you everyone had thought that numbers, they could. It's probably even so much better. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and he's truly horrible on the bases. And frankly, you know what? He plays good defense too. If you're going to reach base, thirty-seven percent of the time, you can be horrible on the bases. You know, like that's you're just going to have to take take your lumps. But with that's that, where the you know? maddening. Put it this way: stuff comes. From. You would rather have a guy who reaches base thirty-seven uh, percent of the time and gets thrown out 70% of the time than a guy who reaches base 27% of the time like Freddie Gauss. Do you know what I'm saying? They were really happy with both seasons, and I know it sounds odd because really there's different spectrums here. Cesar Hernandez had a great season because he got on base. Freddie Gauss had a great season even though he didn't get on base. But they were really happy because 
both those guys can are major league everyday players, even right. on a good team, I think. And they could trade one of those guys eventually because the inevitable, we know it's coming. J.P. Crawford will play shortstop for the Phillies at some point. And the fact that both those guys had good seasons but for different reasons means that they could probably trade one of those guys. Here's one thing with Freddie Galvis and even like a Cameron Rupp. So to me, in the National League, you can have one guy like that. Like the St. Louis Cardinals always had a guy like like Julio Lugo or like whatever. Like a guy who's a defense first guy who has a little pop and bats eighth. But you can't have more than two guys like that in your lineup. Now the question, the problem last year was that Cesar Hernandez was looking like that eight hole guy too now. Now the question is, Cesar Hernandez, at least if he puts up these numbers at second base, all of a sudden he could be a two hole hitter on a, on a contending team. But they would probably look at J.P. Crawford and say he has a very similar skill set to right. Cesar Hernandez, and he can play shortstop, whereas Cesar Hernandez right. cannot. I mean, J.P. is known as a very good on-base percentage guy, not a big slugger, very much right. like Cesar. So should we? So but better. So it sounds like Cesar yeah. Hernandez might be the guy to trade this offseason. Or maybe not this offseason, because you're probably going to need both of them at least the start of the season. Well, the question—I mean, the question is—is is Cesar Hernandez really? a 371 on base percentage guy or do you want to you sell, sell now yeah now. exactly yeah i wouldn't put it past him so like what, what changes did he make that did he take more was he taking more walks because the cesar hernandez i watched at the beginning of the season and throughout the previous two years was a guy who flew out to who that was the biggest flew, change. flew out to shallow right and center field more often than anybody i've ever seen i feel like he got bowed yeah for sure <laughs> is, that a, is, that a is that a wrestling is that a wrestling move larry bowed oh Kept the ball on the ground. That's what they were stressing to him the whole first three months of the season. Then he, you know, he changes his approach, and uh, and the same for both of them. They both have signs in their locker locker that says "keep the ball on the ground" or "keep the ball out of the air." Really, I'd like to go back and look, and it's not going to be. It's not. It would be hard to do. But Hernandez did lead the majors in bait, bunt bunt singles, and I would guess that every game in the second half, he tried to bunt at least once every night. And he's so fast that he can he can get away with that. He can do it. And he got a lot of hits out of it. And that helped you on base percentage. And he's a guy who, I mean, you can get better at base running. I feel like it's easier to do that than get better at hitting baseballs. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, uh, what else do you guys want to talk what else? What else is percolating? Because we have any World Series picks? Yeah. So who do you guys got anyway? I, I think at the beginning of the season I had the Nationals playing. I forget who I had in the, the American League, but. Who do, who do you guys have? Cubs. Who are, and they, they get there on the arm of a Henry Rowan Gardner. <laughs> Check off that second 90s movie uh, reference. Does he throw I, the, I, see, I Seals, like the Cubs. I wish Sealski was here because he would have no idea what, yeah. what you're talking about. Uh, you like the Cubs? Yeah. Against who? Who's the AL team? Because the AL is the interesting one, it seems like. like there's, who knows? For, are you going for the Theo Epstein series? That would be nice. Easy one to write. The Ruben Amaro Jr. Memorial, yeah, that, actually, yeah, Ruben in the World Series that would make a lot of people here. It would just be bizarre. At this time last year, he was still the general manager of the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, at this time last year, he was fired. Okay, but well, had been fired only about a week earlier. All right, I, I, okay, I'm gonna go off the board. Even, right? Didn't he make it through the whole season? No, Profrock was the interim at the oh, end. Oh yeah, 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 that's yeah, right. right. I've got the Texas Rangers out of the AL West. Uh, Adrian Beltre, Carlos Beltran, like that pitcher they have, the left-hander, Cole Hamels, you yeah. Darvish, Matt Harrison. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like the Texas Rangers, and I like the Los Angeles Dodgers, which means that Cole Hamels could face Chase Utley and Carlos Ruiz and in Joe the World Blanton. Series. Well, you know I got to go with my boy Jay Happ. 
So, uh, well, you do the Blue Jays got a one game playoff first. Who's so, who's starting it? Uh, Marcus Stroman, not against the, the King Sausage Pat King Tillman. of Chicago. There's an eighties or Chris movie. Tillman. I just made an eighties movie Abe reference Froman, to me. Marcus Stroman, not really close. <laughs> you weren't even you weren't even born. Grandpa when that movie Stroman. Came out. I was born when that movie came. Grandpa out. Stroman. That's a Philly reference. Who? Grandpa Stroman. I have no idea. The guy who that on the Stroman bread bags. Oh yeah, Stroman bread. Yeah. Tell you. Why don't you tell? Since you've been chomping at the bit for this, <laughs> what was the final score of our Madden game? It was bad. God. The best was. Turns out, so turns out, Madden 2017 is a little different from Madden 95. Yeah, Murphy's not in our league. I mean, he, Murphy's in our league, but we're in different divisions, so we're probably not going to play each other this year. So he he sends in the group chat. I want Breen. I'm ready. Flapping his gums. Texted me on a Monday morning. Yeah, Yo, you ready to go? And I, I was actually home, so I said, "Yeah, I'm ready to go. Let's go. Fire it up." Smoked them fifty-eight to fourteen. Mm. It was bad. Mm. I, and the best was, I scored. <laughs> I scored a touchdown with no time left, and then took a knee on the two-point conversion because I didn't want to score anymore. It's classy. It's classy, Breen. <laughs> so we've got Orioles, Blue Jays tonight, Giants. But you know, I would probably pick the Rangers. I guess. Um, Rangers. Who's the odds on favorite in the AL? Somebody's emailed me them the other day. I just deleted it. I would guess the I would guess the Rangers. But we all know the Giants are gonna win. The favorite so. in the AL, I would think, is the Boston Red Sox. Okay. Yeah, I guess I overlooked. And them. actually that Boston Cleveland series is gonna be fun because Terry Francona has like zero pitchers left. So he is gonna do some crazy things. <laughs> and Tito has like really embraced uh, the the Indians have a very forward thinking front office, and 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 Tito has really used his bullpen differently. He's used his lineup differently, uh, and there could be some crazy things like Andrew Miller pitching in the second inning of some of it, these games. It's just amazing how many of those 08 Phillies are still lingering around. I mean, Joe Bland's pitching. There's a lot of former Phillies in the playoffs here. Mike Martinez is on the Indians. Is he really? Yes. Oh my goodness. Mike Martinez, like you know him personally. <laughs> I covered him. You have Jason Worth, Ben Revere, who had a horrible season for the Nationals. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you have the Dodger threesome of Otley Ruiz, Blanton. You have Hamels with the Rangers. Jay Hap, Hap with the Blue Jays. Ezekiel Carrera with the Blue Jays. Oh, come on. We're not counting Ezekiel Carrera as a former. Ruben Amaro Jr. I know. Terry Francona. So really Terry the only Francona. The, really the only, oh wait, the only, so the only teams without. Carlos Carrasco. Carlos Carrasco is hurt. Oh, is he? Uh, Hunter Pence. That's the great. next great Philly. Remember that? Philly Mag? Yeah. That's a hell of a cover. Another guy who liked bread. He did love bread. That's right. Those were some great commercials. All right. Well, we're going to let... podcast. Let's go eat. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go eat. All right. Great. Hey, folks. Before you move on to whatever other podcasts you listen to, one last thing. Holman Cadillac and Mount Laurel sponsors not another Philly sports talk show. Cadillac is the standard for American luxury cars, and Holman Cadillac in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, is the standard for a luxury car buying experience. See Holman Cadillac's extensive selection of new and Cadillac-certified pre-owned vehicles with over 400 on the ground and more coming in to choose from. Go to HolmanCadillac.com or call 866-865-6973.